Welcome to Scientific American Science Talk, posted on May 5th, 2016. I'm Steve Mursky. On this episode... This probe, if it's actually run by artificial intelligence, as it approaches our planet, it would recognize that there's an intelligent species on this planet because it would, it would sense our radio and TV broadcasts. It would see the lights from our cities. And it intentionally homes in on the brightest spot that it sees because it wants to take advantage of our electric power. That's Mark Alpert. He used to be an editor at Scientific American before he left to write science thrillers. His latest is The Orion Plan, and though it's fiction, there's an awful lot of science in it and inspiring it. We talked in his apartment on the Upper West Side, so again, enjoy the occasional vintage sirens of New York's emergency vehicle fleet. Mark, uh, I want to start at the end of the book, in fact, past the end of the book. The author's note says, I got the idea for this novel back in 1999 when I edited a special issue of Scientific American that focused on space exploration. One of the articles in that issue was entitled Interstellar Space Flight, Can We Travel to Other Stars by science journalist Timothy Ferris. Let's talk about that article, what you got from it, and how that informed what you turned in, what, what you developed into this science fiction novel. Well, that was my favorite article in that particular issue because I'm a longtime Star Trek fan. I love the idea of traveling to another star system. But I wanted to know, uh, you know, is it really possible? Could you really do it? And I thought uh, I would assign that story to Timothy Ferris and he would come back with an answer. And his answer was really interesting. He said, uh, a lot will really depend on the uh, mass of the starship uh, that you send to another star because the larger it is, um, the harder it's going to be to accelerate it. Now, you know, in order to get the, – the, the key problem with interstellar travel is that the distances are so vast. Uh, you're talking the closest star is four and a third light years away, 24 trillion miles. And so um, you're going to have to accelerate a spacecraft to a significant fraction of the speed of light in order to get there in a reasonable amount of time, say, you know, less than a 1,000 years. And so, um, <laughs> why is that a reasonable amount of time? Because well, at least we can, maybe the answer is at least you can think that the human species will still be around, even though the individuals won't be. Or you could build a, a spacecraft that would actually last that long. Right. Yeah. So, um, and not only accelerate the spacecraft, but you also have to decelerate it at the end of its journey. Cause what good is it if it's going to be just whizzing by the, uh, the star system at, you know, a third of the speed of light? That's, that's not going to do you any good. You want it to, so you're going to, at a certain point in its journey, probably halfway through, you're going to have to turn the rockets around, whatever rockets you're using, whether they're chemical rockets, antimatter rockets, uh, whatever it is, you have to turn them around and decelerate the craft. And so any, any way you do it, it's going to require a huge amount of fuel, a huge amount of energy. Um, and when Timothy Ferris actually did the calculations, uh, he found that this was enough to basically bankrupt any civilization that tries to send a large spacecraft uh, to another star system. It would, be, it would just be beyond the energy consumptions of, of our civilization, of, of even a much more advanced civilization. And so when we watch Star Trek, which is supposed to take place a couple of hundred years from now, and they're in these gigantic ships that hold hundreds of people in rather luxurious conditions, and they're bouncing around from planet to planet, star system to star system, 
you know, I, I hope I don't sound naive by saying, boy, that's a, you know, it's kind of crazy, that whole notion. Well, they get away with it in the science fiction world by creating warp drive, which some physicists say, well, you know, that might be possible. It's not a completely crazy idea. There's all these proposals about uh, using some kinds of exotic forms of energy to create um, this bubble around you so that you're, you're not actually within the bubble. You're not actually traveling faster than the speed of light. You're basically changing the spatial dimensions so that you're, you're, you're rapidly uh, decreasing the uh, distance in front of you and increasing the distance behind you. And in this way, you create a shortcut through space-time. And that's a real science idea. And, and believe it or not, there's a guy at NASA who's actually investigating this. You know, NASA has, you know, a $17 billion budget. And so they gave this guy $50,000 to try to create a tabletop experiment to show whether warp drive is possible. And I, I, I looked into it. I, I think I actually sent the guy an email saying, hey, what are your results so far? And I haven't heard back from him. So I assume it, we're not any close to that. Okay, but assuming assuming things like warp drive are not possible um, – Timothy Ferris said, well, the only way you could really feasibly send something to another star system is if it's small, if it's something that you could hold in your hand. If it only weighs 10 pounds, it will still take an enormous amount of energy to accelerate it to 20% of light speed and then decelerate it, but it's within our energy budget. It, it would only be maybe half of our total annual consumption of the world's energy right now, but, but that it's feasible, basically. And, um, and then you, so that, but, but then Timothy wonder, uh, Timothy Ferris says, well, what could you actually do with uh, a spacecraft that's that small? And, and also, we're still talking about, as you said, a thousand years. We're talking about spending way longer than a human lifetime getting this object from one planet to another. Right. And, and we're talking about an unmanned, uh, you know, automated object. But uh, it turns out that with, even with something so small, with, with the way electronics have been miniaturizing, you probably could create a very sophisticated uh, electronics inside a, a small spacecraft. You could have it run by uh, an artificial intelligence system that would uh, could make decisions remotely about how to choose a landing site, for example. Because if you're sending a, a star a craft uh, all the way to another um, star system that's hundreds of light years away, it's totally impractical to uh, you know get instructions from your home planet. Right. And, By know, the time the message, what do I do now, comes in, everybody's dead. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, so, but you, you could have an artificial intelligence system that's making the decisions about, you know, where to land, which, which asteroid or planet do you want to land on. And the other thing that the, uh, this spacecraft could be equipped with is some kind of automated tools so that when it does land, it could then start building things right there at its landing site. It could start extracting the minerals and metals from the ground underneath it and then start building slightly larger tools. It could build a solar panel, perhaps. It could build um, a small manufacturing, uh, like, a, like a 3D manufacturing uh, system, so that eventually, over time, it could build up to build everything it needs, everything this, this system needs to explore the planet and even colonize it. Um, so that was the idea. And you call a probe like that a self-replicating probe because um, it could – at a certain point, it could even build rockets and copies of itself and then, it, and then send those off to explore all the other planets that may be in this uh, star system. So when – after I, I saw the, the, this, this article by Timothy Ferris, I thought – this is a great idea for a novel because could you, couldn't you just imagine like a probe the size of a bowling ball lands in your backyard and then what? Exactly. Like isn't that uh, – this is a scary, fun idea. 
And so I, I sat on it for a long time because, you know, I, I had other novels I wanted to write. But at, at, a few years ago, I thought, okay, it's time to write my alien invasion novel. And I'm going to use what I think is the most realistic scenario for interstellar travel, the idea of a, 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 an automated probe the size of a bowling ball. What if it lands right here in New York City? And I wanted to set in New York City because, you know, that's where I live. And, and, and I even had uh, a rationale for it, which was that um, – this probe, again, if it's actually run by artificial intelligence, as it approaches our planet, it would recognize that there's an intelligent species on this planet because it would it would sense our radio and TV broadcasts. It would see the lights from our cities. And it would recognize that this is an intelligent species that's capable enough to notice the approach of this spacecraft. And so it would recognize that it has to establish a foothold on our planet really fast because otherwise, you know, we would grab it, take it apart, and put it in the Smithsonian or whatever. And so it intentionally homes in on the brightest spot that it sees because it wants to take advantage of our electric power. And it's going to land right in a, a relatively deserted corner of New York City, right up in Inwood Hill Park in the northern tip of Manhattan, where it would land and immediately sink tentacles into the ground to tap into the Con Edison power lines. And so I thought this is this is this sounds like the beginning of a really cool scary thriller. So that was the idea behind the Orion plan. Yeah, I when I started reading it, I I thought to myself, this is of all the wacky ideas for alien invasion, this strikes me as the most realistic one that I've ever come across. And the the idea that it would tap into the electrical lines also made a lot of sense. And you talk about, and in a way, that's how the, um, I mean, they, they track the object as it's coming in, the authorities. But the fact that there's all of a sudden this big pull on uh, the Con Ed system, there, there, there's a lot of juice being taken from this area, is another sign to the authorities that something's going on that they need to investigate real quick. And you have a whole scene in the book where a Con Ed guy is driving around in one of their vehicles that is designed to figure out where there are leaks in the system. And I assume that that's a real truck. It is. It's called a stray voltage detector. And Con Edison uh, started running these trucks because there, were, there was a few tragedies about uh, 10, 15 years ago where um, what would happen is, you know, the wires would get frayed and the insulation would break. And so current would leak from the underground cables up to metal structures on the surface, uh, such as fire hydrants or, or lamp poles, and people would uh, step on or touch these things and get electrocuted. And then there was, there was, you know, pets would get electrocuted and, and even people have died this way. So Con Edison has gotten very serious about, you know, running these trucks throughout the neighborhoods and looking for any kind of stray voltage. And, um, it's fairly easy to detect because you can run um, just a, a simple electromagnetic antenna uh, behind your truck. And because uh, the current is alternating current, right? It's AC. It's constantly oscillating. It's giving off um, radio waves. So it's something that you can detect. So I did a fair amount of research, as you can tell. I assume, about, yeah. 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 I even um, I poked my head into a few manholes. I, I thought this would be, you know, you know, in New York, there's always a manhole being open somewhere and... 
what you the first thing that you see is that the the, the Con Edison trucks have these enormous vacuums that that suck out all the gunk at the bottom of these manholes because they're they they're not um, watertight by any means. You know the 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 manhole covers are, are graded. You know so the rain just goes right in there and whatever street detritus flows in there as well. And so if anyone needs to uh, to work. Uh, inside the manhole, the first thing they have to do is just suck all the gunk out of the bottom of it. So when you were sticking your head in the manholes that were open, were there Con Ed guys? Oh, no, no, no. I, I'd have to go over to the Con Ed guys. i go, oh, okay. hey, listen, I got this book and I was thinking about writing about manholes. Could you, would you mind, you know, if I just take a look? And they go like, yeah, come over here, come over here. We'll show you, you know. You should see these, these things. They're, they're, they're amazing because it's just huge snake-like cables, you know, really thick, really thick, covered in this black insulation. And um, there's primary lines and secondary lines, and the primary lines are taking the you know the current um, from the uh, substation to the transformers that are, are on each block, and then the transformers you know step down the voltage so that you know it, it's now household current that can go into the the various buildings. And so I, 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 the whole system seemed so incredibly chaotic, and also it's decentralized to a point where. Con Ed itself does not know where its power is going at a certain point. I mean, you know, it, it has meters uh, at each usage point. But as far as, you know, how to draw power, it's a fairly decent, you know, you wouldn't necessarily know. If someone is draining the power in a certain area, you'd be able to, um, you know, locate it within a certain part of the city. You'd say, okay, the power drain is coming to this substation. But as far as where within that neighborhood the power is being drained, they would have a hard time figuring it out. So I thought, okay, that's perfect, you know, because the alien probe could they – would, they would know that power is being drained, but they would have no idea exactly where, and so they'd have to start hunting for it. So I thought that would be fun. And you also have, uh, at, at a certain point – and because otherwise there's no story, the alien probe starts infecting humans. Yeah, exactly. Uh, sort of a body snatcher is the classic uh, trope for alien invasion stories. Um, and so I did a little research for that too. I uh, I went to Inwood Hill Park, which um, you know is the most deserted part of Manhattan. It's um, it's some of the 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 only, the only place in Manhattan where they have you know the original. It hasn't been cut down. There's original old growth forest, old growth, yeah, right. forest right there, and it, and it's quite it's hard to climb up those slopes. I, I I was 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 just trying to make my way through those those rocks, you know, the leftover glacial rocks that are just jutting out of the mud, and it's tough. And what you'll notice is that there are all these uh, cardboard boxes in in the mud, and especially in the summer, and a lot of homeless people. This is where they go to sleep at night. And so I thought, well, that would probably be the be the per- first person. Who would uh, notice this alien probe after it landed? And and then I thought, well, that's interesting. Uh, what kind of person would that be? Would it would it be someone, um, you know, maybe who has uh, some kind of substance abuse problem? Why why did this person, you know, um, become an alcoholic? Say, uh, does this person want to uh, go back to his or her, you know, old life? Um, uh, does does have, does he have any hopes of of you know, did he have a family? Does he have any hopes of rejoining his family? So I thought there was an interesting story. There would be a, a different kind of character. Um, and so I thought that would be an interesting uh, person for the probe to uh, – the first person to stumble upon this probe. And, of course, the probe is is programmed, like I said, is by an artificial intelligence system to take advantage of all the local resources at its landing site. And those resources would also include biological resources. And so any humans that happen to uh, nearby – the probe would take advantage of and would figure out uh, how to 
infect this this human, how to uh, change the human's behavior so that it would serve the probe's purpose. Because the probe is vulnerable at this point. It, it's just sitting there, and if anyone, if humans discover it, they could easily uproot it. The probe has to spread its alien machinery, uh, and so it needs the help of these humans. And so I thought that would make for a, an interesting, exciting plot. So the basically the planet Earth has been invaded not by aliens, but by alien technology. Yes, at the start. But of course, you know, in in a book about an alien invasion, you're going to be disappointed if you don't see a real alien by the end of the book. So um, this kind of strategy can be used to colonize a planet. And the, the probe has a ton of computer memory with it. It has all the information about the civilization that it came from. It has all the... Uh, uh, the equivalent of the genetic information for this uh, alien species that set the probe. And so it can possibly resurrect its, the species of its home planet on Earth. Right. And so so that's, that, that is eventually what, what my book, The Orion Plan, heads toward. Um, and, and again, that, that seemed to me scary, too, because I can imagine there's, there would be some process of transformation from human to alien. Right. And you have... Uh... You have uh, tissue culture dishes that uh, you co-opt and basically you grow your own alien. Right, right. And, and of course, you know, and, and I was thinking a lot about um, biology in, in this uh, instance. I was thinking about uh, parasites that influence behavior because I, I was reading about this. This is such a fascinating uh, topic. There's this um, there's a parasite that starts the, the toxoplasmosis. Right. You've heard about this? It's, oh, yeah. It's carried I'm by sure cats. I, right, because I have two cats. Right. I'm sure I have a toxo infection that is uh, altering my behavior toward the cats especially. <laughs> yeah. I think in, in the United States, they say the, the rate is something like 10% of all people carry this. And, and uh, if you have cats, your your chances are much higher. Right, right, right. And it changes the behavior of rodents so that rodents would ordinarily be averse to approaching cats and the smell of cat urine they would run away from. But once the rodent has a toxo infection, the rodent will actually approach the cat urine smell in the cat. Right, because the, the, the parasite somehow alters the neurotransmitters in the rat's brain to change its behavior to benefit the parasite. And I... I and. What was interesting was, you know, scientists used to think that it didn't really have an effect on humans because, um, you know, we were just collateral damage. We were not a target vector of the species. We're what they call like a secondary uh, host of of this uh, this parasite. But then someone had the idea and said, well, let's let's do a really thorough epidemiological study and see if there is any health effect on people who have toxoplasmosis and people who don't. And it was fascinating because what they found was that they couldn't find any, like, you know, didn't, they didn't have, uh, people who carry the, uh, the parasite don't have any higher, um, you know, cancer or heart disease. Um, but they had greater rates of schizophrenia. And the, they had three times the rate of traffic accidents. And that was really strange. Like, what's going on with that? Is Their behavior is, it, is more reckless, maybe. <laughs> yeah. or, or it's affecting reaction times. Right. Really, no one, no one knows. But it just proves that um, a parasite can um, influence the human brain. And so I thought, well, that's going to happen in my case with this alien. Somehow it's going to change the functioning of the brains of, these, of the people that, that the alien probe infects. And they're going, to be, they're going to start, you know, they're going to become pawns of the probe. They're going to start pursuing its will without even recognizing that they're doing right. it. And so, they, so one of the characters uh, goes into the, uh, uh, the Sloan Kettering Cancer Center 
and and steals a tray of stem cells, which the alien probe needs to resurrect its alien species. And so I thought this would be, I thought it would be interesting because um, the, the characters themselves really don't know what they're doing, but the reader can sense, okay, I, 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 this is this is this is this must be the probe that that influenced the person to do that. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Uh, I don't want to give too much of the plot away because we want people to read and enjoy the book, I, I, which I really did. I mean, I gobbled this one up. But what I want to ask you is, other than sticking your head down uh, open manholes, did you do anything else unusual in your uh, research or, or uh, execution of the book? Well, the book is, takes place in New York City, but I thought it would be fun to focus on places in New York that you wouldn't ordinarily be able to go to. So, for example, like manholes and things like that. And then I, at one point, one of the homeless characters winds up at Rikers Island. And so I thought, wow, I really would love to see that jail. But it's really hard to um, to get into because uh, there's a lot of terrible abuses that happen at that jail. It's, the, there's been, it's been in the news, all over the news, about how the guards have been beating up the prisoners there. And so there, I tried. You know, to get a a tour of the place, you know, you know, a press tour. No, no dice, no dice. So I did the next best thing for you. Held up a bank. <laughs> uh, I wish I could say I was that dedicated, but instead I, I went on the web and started looking for videos of the prison. And what I found was a lot of um, church people who are evangelizing the prisoners uh, are allowed into the prison and uh, therefore, and they do videos of people testifying, you know, their faith in, in prison. And so I was able to see a lot of the prison by looking at those videos. And so that was, that was another form of research that I did. And then, and then, I, I also don't want to give away too much of the Orion plan, but there is one scene that takes place in Yankee Stadium, and um, there is one part where the characters are going through uh, the Yankee clubhouse through the locker room, and I did get a chance the to Joe see Joe DiMaggio, yeah, the quote yeah, that hangs yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember so. the, specifically you citing the the quote. If anybody doesn't know, it's pretty famous that uh, as the Yankees pass from the the uh, locker room out onto the field. They they walk underneath a sign that has this quote from Joe DiMaggio that says, "I want to. I just want to thank the good Lord for making me a New York Yankee." Yeah, this book was a very New York centric book, and I, I wanted to show a little bit of my love and pride in the city, and so I enjoyed that. Of course, by the end, I destroy a good part of it, but uh, it, it's still it's all in love. It's all it's all for love. Before we started recording, you mentioned uh, maybe people have heard of uh, this unusual kind of uh, information that's coming in from a particular exoplanet where it just looks like it's probably not, but it looks like one possibility for what we might be seeing is a gigantic alien structure. So what what do you know about that? Well, the, this announcement was perfect timing for a book about aliens. Um what happened was, you know, you're familiar maybe with the Kepler Space Telescope, which between 2009 and 2013 was monitoring a, a patch of sky and looking at the light from more than 100,000 stars, really closely looking at the stars, uh, you know, very, very frequently uh, looking at their light to see if there's any change in the light. Because um, what it was looking for was the passage of a planet in front of the star, because a certain number of those stars, their their planets will be aligned in such a way that the planet will pass right in front of the star as the telescope is you know, outside of Earth, is looking, looking at it. 
and uh, you will see it, uh, a, a characteristic dip in the intensity of the light from that star. Small dip, usually only about 1%, and it'll be very regular because it'll happen every time the planet comes around its orbit. And so you will be able to measure two things from this. You'll be able to see from, from the, the period, uh, from how often this, this dip takes place, you can calculate what is the size of this planet's orbit around the star. And then from the, uh, from the intensity of the dip, how much it decreases in light, you can uh, estimate the size of the planet. And so this is a great tool that this Kepler telescope has, has provided for showing, uh, I think they've, this, they've discovered something like a thousand exoplanets this way. And of those more than a thousand candidates, um, there's, there's a few dozen that seem to be about the size of Earth and that are also orbiting at, at, in what they call the habitable zone, you know, the Goldilocks zone, uh, not, too, not too far from the star, not too close, you know, not too hot, not too cold, just right for liquid water. So this is very exciting. Um, but, you know, the Kepler telescope collected so much data that, that people are still sifting through it, even though the mission ended a few years ago. And there's this group called Planet Hunters that is is that that actually looks at the data. It's it's sort of a crowdsourced effort, and they this group they 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 flagged this one star, and they said this star's light curve. It's it, the the measurement of the intensity of light is radically different from every other star that's in the Kepler sample. It's it's not it's not having these small dips at regular intervals. It's having really big dips, like as much as twenty two percent. At crazy intervals, you know, after a few weeks, after a hundred days, it, it, it varied all over the map. And not only that, but the dips weren't regular. As uh, uh, they weren't, when when a pass, when a planet passes in front of a star, you see a very uh, symmetric dip in its light. Whereas these were very asymmetric. They would, they would, they would, um, the light uh, intensity would go down very slowly and then shoot right back up. It was very strange result. And so a bunch of scientists, uh, a team. Who, that was led by this researcher at Yale named Tabitha Boyajian, was sort of tasked with explaining, you know, what are the, what could possibly explain this? It, it can't be a planet because um, a planet is too small to create this these kind of you know huge reductions in, in the star's light. And so they thought, well, maybe it's a, it's just a vast cloud of dust. So you know, as we know, you know, young stars uh, are often surrounded by clouds of dust, that, especially when those clouds are coalescing into planets, but Tabby star, which was the became the known as Tabby star after Tabitha Boyajian, uh, it, by all evidence is not a young star. It looks like a old main sequence star. And uh, and moreover, when um, when they pointed infrared telescopes at this star, they didn't see um, any excess in infrared radiation. And if there really was dust around the star, then then the dust would would absorb um, the starlight and then re-radiate it as infrared. And so that's a very characteristic thing. So so they know it can't be dust. It can't be like two planets have collided and created this huge uh, cloud of dust. Or um, so that was ruled out. So the one hypothesis they they came up with that could could possibly explain this crazy light curve was that it's possible that maybe a, a nearby star had disturbed some of the distant comets that were orbiting the star and thrown them out of their regular orbits and, and hurled them toward the star. And there was a huge swarm of them and they passed right in front of the star at just the moment when Kepler observed it, which seems unlikely, but, you know, it could happen. It is a possible explanation. And so that was the preferred explanation. Uh, you know, uh, another team of researchers, of course, they had, they had been writing a paper uh, saying, well, how could Kepler be used to detect um, alien structures. You know, the idea, I guess the idea really comes from Freeman Dyson, who uh, way back in 1960 speculated that once a, an alien civilization, once any civilization becomes advanced enough, 
it would its energy needs would increase and it would, so it would be logical for it to try to capture as much of its star's energy as possible and so ultimately it would build this huge sphere around, around the, the star sun. right around yeah F- famous in a uh, star trek next generation episode exactly could that be a dyson sphere <laughs> exactly <laughs> and uh but they say well what about what if you don't have the the full dyson sphere if it's transitional you know you're going to they call that a dyson swarm and a dyson swarm could consist of you know solar panels that may be thousands, tens of thousands, even millions of miles across. And they might have irregular shapes. You know, uh, they would be, uh, they might be very, very thin, but but have a huge surface area. They might be orbiting the star or they might actually be what they call a statite, which is actually held in place by solar pressure. So it doesn't even have to orbit the star because it's so light and the solar, the solar wind would be enough to keep it in place. Um, but if you had a bunch of these things, they would create this kind of very irregular uh, blocking of the of the star's light that you'd be seeing. So, so it was a radical alternative explanation for what's going on at Tabby Star. Now, most most scientists say, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, hold on, uh, let's not invoke alien engineering too quickly." Let's. There's probably a, a you know a simple astrophysical explanation for this, and you know scientists have had have have encountered this sort of. Um, mysteries before, you know, in 1967, when they discovered the first pulsar, when astronomers saw the first pulsar, um, which is a very strong, very regular radio signal, they thought, well, maybe this is a beacon from an alien civilization. And for a few months, this, this, they, they actually, uh, the, the, the designation they gave to the first pulsar was LGM1, and LGM stood for Little Green Men. <laughs> um, but as it happened, you know, within a few months, they discovered a second pulsar, and they realized, okay, you know what? It's it's not. It's a neutron star. It's a rotating, rapidly rotating neutron star. Not no aliens. And so, a lot of scientists are, are, are professing caution here. They're saying, listen, you know, don't don't get ahead of yourselves. Um, you know, it, it, there's probably some astrophysical phenomena that can explain Tabby Star. But that didn't stop you know scientists at the um, the Allen Telescope Array in California to point their radio telescopes at, at, at Tabby Star just to see if there's any. Messages coming, any, anything radio or coming. episodes of I Love Lucy. Exactly, out. it might it might improve you know our entertainment here on Earth. And so they pointed it, and they found nothing. But the star is fifteen hundred light years away, and so uh, e- even with the very sensitive nature of this teles- radio telescope that we have here on Earth, the 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 aliens would have to be broadcasting messages, you know, using you know hundreds of times the the power consumption of our planet. Just to, for this radio, and and so just the fact the fact that they didn't see radio messages does not mean that they're not aliens. There, the aliens may just not be. They may have figured out you know more efficient ways to communicate than radio anyway. So that didn't rule it out. And then in January of this year, uh, something new popped up because people are, you know everyone's wondering. Well, uh, there's a lot of telescopes now pointed at Tabby Star, waiting to see if there's going to be another dip in its light. A- amateurs in the American Association of Variable Star Observers are now looking at this star pretty much every night. And if they see another dip in light, they're going to alert the professional astronomers who would then, who would then train, you know, the big guns, the most powerful telescopes at the star. But in the meantime, this one researcher um, decided to go through the archival records. It turns out that Harvard College Observatory, uh, between uh, the years 1890 and 1989, collected glass plate photographs of the sky from telescopes around the globe. And there are hundreds of thousands of these glass plate 
photos of the sky, all parts of the sky, stored up up uh, up at the Harvard College Observatory. And so this this researcher, uh, Bradley Schaefer was his name, I, I believe at Louisiana State, uh, decided to look, well, where is Tabby Star in any of these glass plates? And it turns out it was in several hundred of them. And so he started uh, trying to use old-fashioned techniques for estimating the magnitude, the intensity of the starlight uh, from its uh, appearance on these glass plates. It's a, almost a forgotten art because now everything is digitized. We don't, we don't use glass plates anymore. Um, well, he discovered something pretty incredible, which is that uh, between 1890 and 1989, the magnitude of the star, the intensity of its light went down by about 20%. So it's consistent with the the modern findings of twenty two percent. It's but it's on a different time scale, right? Because the 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 flickering that that Kepler saw was on a time scale of days and weeks, and here you have a separate kind of fading that is happening over a hundred year time scale. Now that's strange, right? Because because you look like you have two different um, strange anomalies. Is does one? Phenomena is one one thing producing both anomalies. You would think you know, using the principle of Occam's razor, mm-hmm. which of course you know I always translate as "keep it simple, stupid." Right. Um, that there would probably be there's probably just one um, astrophysical phenomena that can that can account for both things, but it can't be the comet swarm that Tabitha Boyajian's team proposed is the most likely explanation for the the time curve of the star. Uh, I'm sorry, the light curve of the star, because um, these comets, if, if a whole bunch of swarm of comets was actually, uh, uh, you know, uh, disrupted and sent, hurled toward the star, they would they would disperse over time. You know, you would this wouldn't happen. Oh, it would be a one time thing. And so, so, so suddenly the comet hypothesis uh, has become suspect now. Um, however. The alien megastructure hypothesis is not ruled out because one could imagine it might take a hundred years to start assembling your megastructures. And so you can imagine how that might fit both of the observations. Of course, now we're not, I'm not saying it's aliens, Steve, but it's aliens. Very shortly after Mark Alpert and I spoke, Russian billionaire Yuri Milner announced he was devoting $100 million of his own money toward the development of an interstellar probe called Starshot that would be very light and small, just as Alpert discussed. Although any probe Milner got off the ground would not be self-replicating, so we wouldn't be taking over anybody else's planet. Mark wrote about Milner's plan. You can find his essay, Alpha Century or Bust, on our website, www.scientificamerican.com, where you can also find all the latest science news and follow us on Twitter, where you get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. <laughs>